I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. My guest today is Vassar College President and Political Science Professor Elizabeth Bradley, who leads the Coeducational Independent Residential Liberal Arts College founded in 1861. She was previously the director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy at Yale, a university-wide interdisciplinary program to train emerging leaders. The program employed a comprehensive approach to achieving large ends with limited means, examining disciplines across history, political science, classical literature as context to address a wide range of contemporary public policy challenges on security, economic inequality, global health, and climate change. President, I'm delighted to welcome you here today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Alexander. I was just saying to you off-camera, we've hosted both liberal arts college presidents and major university presidents. I'm thinking of Wesleyan, Notre Dame, University of Richmond. We're delighted to have you here. We'd like to get a sense of the campus commons, specifically this question of free speech and fair speech on campus. Um, How do you think, in the midst of a contentious and sometimes even vitriolic political climate, how your campus and campuses more broadly are confronting the resurgence of bigotry and the, and the danger of uh, accepting a discourse that might be a bigoted discourse? Mm. Well, thank you so much, Alexander. It's a great question, something I think about a lot. I think most people running colleges and universities today, this is absolutely front and center primary question for us. And I'd step us back a little bit um, on your question. I think we have to frame free speech as not an isolated value. It's absolutely fundamental. You have to have it on college campuses. There's no way around it. But if you think free speech alone is going to confer the kind of social equity we look at, we're mistaken. And instead, we really need to look at both pursuing the ends of free speech and the ends of social inclusion at the same time. When you do that, it's a really interesting campus because suddenly you are saying everybody has a voice the whole goal of the campus is to bring different voices together that are really different and that's edge that brings edges to the place and what happens at an edge an edge can be all kinds of things it can be sharp and very difficult and full of tension it can be thrilling and sort of you see both sides at once because you're right on the edge and at Vassar what we're really working on is creating an environment where you allow edges to meet like that The sparks will fly, but hopefully they get channeled into all kinds of new, I don't know, you spark the creativity, new friendships, new ways to look at the world, creativity, innovations. So if you allow both the free freedom to speak, but you bring everybody to the table for that freedom, which is sometimes what hasn't happened before, I think you can really make a change. And that skills, those kind of skills are good for the world, not just for campuses. You're practicing something you call engaged pluralism in the way that you participate in the democratic governance of your own institution. Can you tell our viewers about that? Yes. Well, one of the strong values at Vassar has always been empowerment. The students are empowered. The faculty are empowered. We have shared governance. So a democracy is really what we are about. And engaged pluralism is fundamental to that. 
when we say engaged pluralism, it's really a um, value system or a framework for dealing with a wildly diverse set of people. And, you know, America hasn't always dealt well with diversity when you think about it. I mean, um, there's segregation. That's one way which people deal with diversity. They separate people into their groups and big boundaries between them and they don't learn from each other. I've had a huge history on that. There's assimilation, which we've also had a huge history on where people just who are diverse come in and you just need to act like the majority and you'll get along. We reject both of these and say they're polar ways to look at it. And instead, an engaged pluralistic approach is, well, let's, let's hear what you have to say and engage long enough that you really hear what the other side is. Doesn't mean you're going to change someone's mind, doesn't mean you're going to go away with a changed mind, but you will go away having learned something. You'll understand more. And that's what we're trying to do throughout the campus. And you're, to be specific, you're giving students, faculty, and staff alike an opportunity, a vehicle through which they can express their democratic will beyond speech mm -hmm. in actually mm -hmm. what is participatory governance mm -hmm. within your community, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a unique aspiration. Absolutely. Um, we, a great example of this is we have a committee called the Priority and Planning Committee. And um, that committee is fundamental to setting the strategic direction of the college. And that committee, people on that are elected, and it is students, staff, administrators, faculty, and that, that committee really is the heart of where we, how we set our next five to seven year plans. And it's, it's a democracy. They are elected, and then we duke it out around the table, and students and faculty together, and staff as well, and sort of there's quite an equality of voices around the table. In the same way, President, that you reject a dichotomy or some sort of binary choice in the way we conceive of mm -hmm. diversity or what is egalitarian mm -hmm. on a campus, I think of that when it comes to speech. Mm -hmm. Because we have social media executives now pretending to be First Amendment lawyers in the way that they want to purely govern their mediums, which, like at Vassar, they can decide th that there is free speech and there's also compassionate speech, and that, in the words of John Palfrey, we want brave and safe spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't, they're not thinking that way. They are absolutists when it comes to free expression right now, for the most part, with minimal banning of hate and bigotry on their platforms and also disinformation. But I reject the idea that you're an adherent, a zealot adherent to the First Amendment or you're a zealot adherent to censorship. Those are not the single courses. There's also something called classification, mm -hmm. meaning you identify what is bigoted or what is disinformation. And I'm wondering how that plays out at the campus level and whether that could at all be emulated for these mega, mega mm -hmm. information hubs that are so much the origin of the bloodstream today. Yeah. I think the issue of um, what you're really going to do when, once you allow free speech and you've got some, something crawls into that free speech that's very bigoted or hateful, et cetera, what does an institution do then if they have freedom to do what they want? They're a private institution, they are a media company, et cetera. And there are a couple of principles, I think, that really help us on the campus and I think could be thought of more broadly. Um, the first is you've got to make that a topic of conversation. You know, what happens so often is when there's been something hatefully said, immediately people jump to their corners and stop talking. They don't stay around the table. Another approach could be, so that was hateful. What's going on here? Why are we talking about this? What's underneath that? So that 
again, it's sort of privileging the social inclusion and community side of being free. And as you said, I don't believe in these as dichotomous. I believe, in fact, you've, you've got freedom, but it only really is successful if you have social inclusion and people can stay at the table when something hateful has happened and keep talking about it rather than ahead of time um, being definitive about what will be in and what will be out. Often that emerges through how you talk about it. That said, so there's flexibility first. That said, there have to be boundaries too. And we know this from millennia of theorists about you're not free unless you have some boundaries. And well, you don't have a civil free society. Yeah. Ultimately, you've Those got... Those have to animate democratic rule. Yep. Otherwise, it slips into anarchy. Anarchy. Right. Right. Exactly. So, you know, when I say classification, I am intent on um, not labeling so much as drawing those boundaries in a way that is recognizable and is not censoring people. Yep. No question about it. And um, Because we need a grand strategy mm -hmm. right now for these social media mm -hmm. companies that have abdicated responsibility. Yeah, and knowing what the boundaries are up front and people, the best way to sort of govern a commons, you know, if we think about Eleanor Ostrom, get the boundaries determined up front when people aren't so heated, when you're kind of calm, mm -hmm. Nothing has happened. Figure out what you will do if this happens. So negotiating those boundaries and those rules up front is something we work really hard on at Vassar. And a um, good example of this is when we have speakers. You know, we are very alert about what speakers who are very controversial can do to a campus. And so often, you know, the hate comes from the outside. It doesn't emerge on the inside. It really comes to you. Nonetheless, how do you manage that? So we have developed a, a really great process for this. Um, that involves, we have a set of peacekeepers that are students who have been trained themselves about how to contain if things get completely out of control. We definitely allowed peaceful protests, but it must be peaceful, it can't shut down a speaker. And there's so many proactive boundaries you can set. For instance, at the beginning of the talk, these are the rules of the talk. Everybody gets one question. You don't get more than one question. The um, moderator will hold the microphone. <laughs> you know, they're tiny things to very large things that um, it will end at 7 o'clock. It won't just keep bleeding on if, like, things are getting out of control. It ends at this time. And I believe that if we took this, and it's so often true about grand strategy, the devil is in the details. And some of these, they're like leverage points, small, bounded rules that you put in place when people are calm and they agree to the rules and then you enforce the rules when it happens. Um, As you said, from the outset you do have to determine whether someone's intent or an institution's intent is constructive or destructive. And, and you know, that's a nuanced conversation mm -hmm. that we can only have once we have a First Amendment, mm -hmm. but we have to have mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And if someone's intent is destructive, you hope your rules are robust enough that you can protect people from that destruction. And that's, that's what you're going for, because it's and hard to tell what is defined as counterproductive or destructive as opposed to constructive or productive in right. terms of speech and governance, right. that is viewed as a subjective matter now mm. more than mm. an objective matter. So subjectively speaking, as you speak to your fellow presidents, yes at universities, private and public yep. around the country. What are they saying about these kinds of subjective tests that we employ? You know, I think that most college presidents and um, universities are thinking all the time about how to allow both freedom and safety to be on the campus. 
um, and longevity. You know, you really don't want to lose. And I think this is a really important thing as we talk about campuses. We have to remember that these students, they start as first years. They're 18 years old. Then they're sophomores, and sophomoric is a word for a reason, because often in the sophomore year, you know, people grab on an ideology, and they're putting on that ideology for three weeks, and then they're going to put on another. That's how we grow up. And so, so often colleges are sort of made fun of for the silly things that happen because people take a cross-section of, well, what happened to that? Well, you know, yeah, that was silly. But by the time that student's a senior, if they've gone through several of these events and there have been boundaries and there's been good leadership, you know, they're going to laugh at themselves back when they were sophomores too. We all did the stuff like that. What's dangerous in our world and um, in terms of how we get media around is just today's world, those silly mistakes that get made, you know, in one lecture hall at the end of a building suddenly can be live streamed. And what used to be words can't hurt you, it's just words. Words carry a lot more power than they used to because a trillion people can see them quickly. Right. And your future employers can see them quickly. And as a result, I think that um, the stakes are just so high now. And that we really do try to educate all of us about, you know, from administrators to staff to faculty, students, you know, watch your words because they aren't per se weapons, but boy, they can be weaponized. And so we work pretty hard on that as part of the education. Today and today's unequal society is so measurable mm -hmm. in the vastness of the inequity mm -hmm. that we have a presidential candidate and many presidential candidates anticipating 2020 who are recognizing the height of this disconnect mm -hmm. and proposing major overhauls that are sometimes detailed and sometimes systemic in how they're going to try to better our economy for more people. Mm -hmm. Being at the helm of a university but also being a political scientist, mm -hmm. to put your political scientist mm -hmm. hat on right now, how effective are these candidates going to be and not just um, wanting to bring back normalcy in our rhetoric mm -hmm. to reverse course from what the Trump administration, mm -hmm. but specifically Trump, has meant to our discourse, mm -hmm. but how successful do you anticipate they're going to be at um, negotiating with the American people um, on this issue? And I specifically reference Senator Warren, who has many plans that would try to foster equity in a climate that's denied opportunity for so many people. Yeah, well, key question. I mean, let's start with income inequality. Uh, we go back to ancient Rome <laughs> to now when countries or nation states get too inequitable problems happen. That's not a stable situation. And we can study one revolution after the other. Large differences in income that persist don't persist. Ultimately, there's a coup, there's a change, there's a new way in which that society will be, um, will be managed. The question is, where is the United States in this long trajectory of building towards inequality? And where is the tipping point where finally the people of the country, whether they're wealthy or not, say we can no longer sustain this kind of income inequality. Um, and, and I think pending how you answer that is whether Senator Warren or any of the other presidential candidates on either side 
could really address the income inequality issue that's underlying so much of our polarization. I mean, we look at it geographically, we look at it rural city, people are living in different United States. I just came back from Iowa and uh, speaking with an Uber driver who considered himself very conservative, and we came to a conclusion that whether you consider yourself pretty conservative or pretty liberal, you are discontent with the status quo, mm -hmm. the economic status quo in this country that President Trump intended to and promised to correct. He said he alone could fix it mm -hmm. when it came to economic distress. Um, and so you, you don't really have these two populations living in silos other than maybe their registration mm. uh, with the exception of the oligarchic community mm. which wants the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, so you have pretty conservative and pretty liberal people who, who would probably agree about human dignity and probably agree about an economy that respects human dignity. Um, and so how do you translate that politically for someone like Senator Warren into language that is going to be robust enough to compete in a general election? How and that's certainly what she's trying to do, is figure but out exactly from the what that language is. And what is it? Yeah. Well, listen, I think your point that um, people agree a lot more than you think they agree is true. We've seen it in healthcare completely. I mean, everybody wants everybody to have access to healthcare. Who doesn't want someone who needs to get healthy to have access to healthcare. Everybody wants it. What I think we don't face well enough is what sacrifices have to be made to make that happen. What income redistribution, what sense of control, which institutions that are structural in the United States actually need to change to say, oh yeah, everyone can get healthcare, and yes, we can have more um, income equality. So, whereas you said, you know, my Uber driver and a conservative and liberal, we agree, but the devil is in the details again when you get to, okay, so. No, I, I what agree. We it's need part of do. a grand reconciliation. The, the grand really strategy is. we need it right really now is, is grand mm -hmm. reconciliation. Yes, and in history, those don't happen without a lot of pain to where people are ready for that reconciliation because the alternative is so difficult. And is our alternative right now so difficult yet? And where is that moment? What Elizabeth Warren is seeking is a return to the Eisenhower administration mm -hmm. for all people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we want to say that that didn't include people of color, mm -hmm. we want economic fairness that was the status quo when it comes to the taxation system. Right. I mean, ever since the progressive taxation and the progressive era, regressive reforms or overhaul have dominated. I think the first thing of how do you sort of put that into words, I mean, I think the most successful presidents to this have appealed to our common values. You know, that's, that's where they come back to, which tend to be, you can get ahead here, education, health, um, leadership, democracy, these values that I think most voters feel very, okay, yes, I can agree with that. The problem is that those values only go so far because, you know, you get elected and moments later you have to say, yeah, what's the policy? What is the manifestation of what we're going to do? And I think the, um, particularly in my own field of public health, one of the most successful global health ever um, innovations happened during George Bush's time with the uh, PEPFAR, AIDS um, relief. And one of the grand strategies he really had was to bring the left and the right together around something that was root about humanity. And 
ultimately found ways, devil's in the details about how he would write the legislation so that the left and the right could stand behind it. And yet, retrospectively, that feels like a betrayal in the sense that it was so targeted at non-domestic crises. Ultimately, though, that, you know, working through PEPFAR ultimately did drive a complete change in how we do HIV care in the United mm -hmm. States in a much better way. So it's a matter of ordering right. and Priorities. where he could find the opportunity to really demonstrate some collegiality across the lines and then using that as leverage to say, okay, this is what we're doing all over Africa. What are we doing right here? And I think that those, you know, we're in a different world now, but opportunities where you can see the left and the right could agree on something right. that is at root about supporting humanity and sticking with it for a while. Part of that uh, realization that we're such an unequal society is at least honor people's right to have health care. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. we have such mm -hmm. devious yes. um, inequality and extremes, at or least divisive, give it, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, I say devious yeah. you know, because it's some malignant element <laughs> right, to I it. Right, I guess so, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but at least give everybody yeah. adequate quality care, yeah. something that the, that the Affordable Care Act aspired to do but yeah. didn't accomplish totally. Yeah. So um, how, how do you look at realizing what is Americans' left and right desire for their friends, family, and communities to have the right to health care? This is a critical piece of, I think, untangling and understanding where we are with health care and Medicare for all. What you just said, we want our friends and family to have everything. That's so true. What we have a really hard time, and it's very historical in the United States, is really including everybody in that. We're fine with our friends and family. We're not so good with whoever across the country. And that othering, that our individualism is sort of a beautiful thing, but it also allows us to sort of say us and them. And when we've traveled to other countries that have been quite successful in covering their entire population, even for less than we do by a good bit, um, you know, they're a lot better at the value of interconnectedness and community. And because you are a citizen, you get this. And that is you get a job, you get health care, you get pre-early um, uh, childhood education. We're not that good at this here. We're much more, well, we got it because we earned it. And you, I don't know. And I think it's because we're so big. Race and ethnicity absolutely play into this. I mean, we just look at our country. We have so much trouble feeling as one. So back to what you had asked about what could Senator Warren or any of the others do to sort of bridge this. We've got to tap into something that we feel is our root at, um, as Americans and what our values are that does not separate us. You know, because individualism, though we feel this, that's not that good a value to get us through the problems that we're having now in an interconnected, very globalized world. That individualism is probably hurting us, and yet that's what we rally around. And systemically, is there an approach that you think would be the most responsible um, to achieve that ethical yeah. health care opportunity? I mean, is, yeah. is there a way to do it? Well, I think when you're, again, you raised it, when you're thinking about grand strategy, you have to marry two things. You have to have the big idea, but then you have to understand what is practical, what really could be accomplished. So that means contextualizing we're in the United States. You want to move me to Norway? I got other ideas, but if we're going to be in the United States, um, you know, I really think that the ACA and what Obama was working on was absolutely in the right path. 
And I think the continuing building on that, and some of that's been taken apart in this administration, putting it back together with even more focus on the early childhood education and some of the social sides of our healthcare system, housing, early childhood education, nutrition. If you are going to employ a wealth tax mm -hmm. to ensure a public option that is mm -hmm. fair and equitable mm -hmm. and high quality, mm -hmm. and maybe Mayor Pete, who's talked mm -hmm. about a more moderate approach mm -hmm. to achieving universal health care, yeah. Maybe he is the spokesperson for this idea. Mm -hmm. But the uh, data came out explaining what Senator Warren's wealth tax would mm -hmm. mean for these billionaires. And it would mean a drop in the bucket of mm -hmm. from X billions right. to Y billions. Um, and, and, you know, I think the advocates of patriotic millionaires and billionaires and who see the current tax situation as so disruptive to civil society recognize that people don't fully understand what one billion dollars is. Mm -hmm. Right. The wealth tax is an honorable and legitimate mm -hmm. and strategic proposal, a grand proposal. Mm -hmm. Now whether or not it can achieve health care for all, um, early childhood education for all, everything that everyone wants, well that's in dispute, but what's not in dispute is that you would have important public funds to dedicate to important public causes mm -hmm. if you had a wealth tax. Mm -hmm. I think the jury is out. I'm sorry. I really can't say that, oh yeah, that's viable and we know that will work. Um, and We don't know either way at this really, point. I just don't think we can possibly know. And you know how markets re respond right. to things. So once you change the rules, there are going to be a lot of other interactions that occur that could really change the way things work too. So I think it is, there's no way to tell it would work. If it would work, we know it would work, piece of cake, I think most people would get behind it. But is it enough? What will the unintended effects be? Unclear. And a lot of people have tried this kind of work before in our you know, history. The idea that we have to tax the wealthy is not a new idea. And it's been very tough to make that actually pay as much as it would need to be to cover all of the things that we want in our society. So, But no one has credibly talked about a radical step, a grand step, that would equalize um, public utility, basically. Mm -hmm. It would give people a chance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because we veered so far from the Eisenhower and Kennedy years mm -hmm. to where we are today, yeah. maybe it's something we ought to consider. And we'll talk we more about this it. in 2020 as okay. these grand strategies are underway. Thank you, President. Thank for you so on. much. It's great to talk to you. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, The Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, 
Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.